Hi church, we have two readings today, one from Matthew and one from James. Um, We're starting in chapter 5 of Matthew and reading through to the end of the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the second reading is the first 12 verses of James. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, now, uh, we, I don't know if you, you may or may not have noticed, but there's been a bit of a rhyme and a reason to our preaching this year. Uh, you remember back in January, we uh, started by looking at how the spiritual practices of Scripture, of Sabbath, and of prayer nurtures our relationship with God. Uh, and then following that, after a little diversion in Mark, we, we saw how the Spirit uses, works within that relationship Uh, to produce the fruit of the Spirit, godly character. So, in a way, we've looked up in terms of our relationship with God, and we've looked in to Christian character, and now we're going to look out. How does that character flow out into the everyday stuff of life, into our actions, how we live? And to answer that question, there is no better place to go than the book of James. That's where we're going to be today. Before we jump in, let me pray for us. 
Uh, Father, we thank you that you've given us the book of James to show us in very real and practical ways what a godly life looks like. I ask that you would now, by your Spirit, help us to see not just um, the, the practical side of, of, of who we are as Christians, um, but our identity as Christians, how uh, those actions flow out of who we are and who you've made us to be. I pray, Father, that you appoint us to Jesus and show us him just as James does. Amen. Uh, if you uh, have a Bible, whether digital or otherwise, we really encourage you to turn to James chapter 1 because we'll be flitting around a little bit through these first verses. be helpful for you in keeping up. Uh, we should start by asking a little question, uh, who is James? If you're in our seminar with Brett just before, you probably already know, but for the rest of us, who is James? Well, James, um, most scholars agree, is probably none other than the half-brother of Jesus, a son of Mary and Joseph. Now, some of you uh, may have older siblings who believe that they are God's gift to the world. Well, imagine if you figured out that was actually true. <laughs> and that is the problem and the challenge of no doubt James had um, going through Jesus' ministry. And in fact, he's numbered uh, in the Gospels, not as someone who was necessarily a believer or a follower, um, but like the rest of his family, thought maybe his brother's claims of messiahship were getting a bit ahead of themselves. And yet, the next that we hear from James is in the book of Acts. And something has clearly changed. The resurrection of Jesus has come and, and proved to him uh, who Jesus really is. And so we find him in, in Acts leading the church in Jerusalem, right? one of the, the major church bodies of the time. This letter that he writes then, probably from Jerusalem, is addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. In other words, uh, Jewish Christians who have emigrated out of their homeland of Judea. Many of them actually forced against their will because of the rising persecution in the city against Christians. Ever since then, this letter of James, passed on from the generations, has been a source of encouragement for believers under threat. Now, even if we might not really be in quite the same situation as the original readers, James is still important for us. Because James also assumes that all believers of all times will be a bit like spiritual refugees, trying to make a home in a world that is not our ultimate home. So we need help in navigating the complexities of following Jesus in a world that does not recognize Jesus as Lord. What's so interesting about James is that it reads a bit like the book of Proverbs, but it reminds us of Jesus. Like Proverbs, it's full of short, pithy, uh, practical wisdom on numerous topics. But it's also full of quotes and allusions to the Gospels, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to refer to a lot in this series. James uh, takes a lifetime of experience soaking in the teaching of Jesus and applies it into everyday life, real life challenges. And James is certain of this. The key to surviving in a difficult world is by following in the way of Jesus. 
But James has a bigger hope for us than just mere survival. Uh, In verse four of chapter one, he spells out his ultimate goal for his book. This is what he hopes for us. That we might become, he says, mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now the word there for mature uh, means to attain complete moral integrity. For a person's heart and mind and soul and body and emotions to be brought into alignment by God in love for him and love for others. So maturity for James is to be fully realized as the people God has made us to be. Now, he's not saying that we can reach that goal in this lifetime. In fact, we won't until Jesus returns. But James assumes that we can set, that, set our sights towards that goal and see real progress along the way. So as we begin the series today, I want to ask us to, ourselves to, to ask the question, how does a person become mature? This is going to act also as kind of an intro to the whole book where he spells this out in in greater detail along the way. Uh, But today, James, I think, gives us three initial answers on what it takes to become mature. It takes going up against, it takes persevering through, and it takes moving further in. You got those? Going up against, persevering through, and moving further in. So first of all, it takes going up against trials. Uh, In 1996, John Howard was interviewed on the ABC program for Corners. Some of you may may actually remember this. I don't. Uh, This is why I'm also not getting the vaccine at the moment. At the time, John Howard was in the middle of his campaign to become Prime Minister of Australia as leader of the Liberal Party. And the interviewer, Liz Jackson, asked him if he could give a summary of his vision for Australia. You know what he said? He said, I would like to see an Australian nation that feels comfortable and relaxed. I would like to see an Australian nation that feels comfortable and and relaxed. That was his vision for Australia heading towards the year 2000. Now, whether or not Howard achieved his vision, that can definitely be debated, uh, but he certainly put his finger on the pulse of something that many Australians really want a life of relative ease, comfort. There's a problem with this. The big problem is that no amount of political action can make that a reality for everyone. We're all too aware that people fall through the cracks and for them life is marked not by ease and safety but by anxiety and struggle. That being said, our nation has certainly become and is prosperous and lots of us are buoyed by its success. And so perhaps we do feel an amount of ease and comfort. But making it in life and getting some financial security doesn't actually end up making for really happy citizens. Instead, people become, on one hand, entitled and self-satisfied, and on the other hand, quite isolated and fragile. 
when tragedy strikes, they have very few resources to deal with it, often turning to various methods of self-medication to numb and distract. And there's lots of uh, research to back this up. So in an economy geared towards achieving comfort, the poor are left crushed by inaccessible dreams, and the rich are left emotionally vulnerable to unfulfillment and despair. And in fact, after the year and a half that we've had, the idea of a relaxed and comfortable Australia seems like an absurd irony. (laughs) Because the pandemic has brought home the harsh reality that ultimately no one is safe from trials. So James begins here by reminding the rich and the poor of an important truth. Total comfort is an illusion. It doesn't exist. We will all face trials of many kinds. And by that, James means a complete shopping list of hardships. Financial trials, emotional trials, relational trials, mental trials. We will all face them, no matter who we are or what kind of background we have or what kind of position we're in. And yet the, first, uh, the rest of his first thought here seems then kind of hopelessly naive as opposed to the, the realism of that first statement. Because he then says, consider it pure joy when you fall into various kinds of trials. What's that supposed to mean? Is that kind of a don't worry, be happy philosophy? You know, turn that frown upside down? No, he's not as shallow or as unrealistic as that. What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. First of all, uh, he says, consider it joy. Joy. Joy isn't the same thing as happiness. Happiness is a feeling of elation that we get from a particular set of circumstances. So uh, when a student aces a test, they feel happy. When a parent sees the first steps of their child, they feel happy. But joy is a bit different. Uh, Jack Wellman, an author, uh, describes it as an emotion that's acquired by the anticipation, acquisition, or even the expectation of something great or wonderful. There's a really important point there. Uh, Joy uh, can come from circumstances. Absolutely, you can get joy from a thing that's happening to you. But uh, it doesn't end there. It's linked to something bigger. You can get joy, in fact, not because of circumstances, but despite circumstances. I remember the first day that I picked up a book by the author Terry Pratchett. Now, love him or hate him, I loved him. (laughs) Loved him, loved him, loved him. In fact, reading this first book, I was like, this is my guy. This is amazing. This book is awesome. It was a joyful experience. But the most joy actually came when I got to the end of the book. Because as you do, I went back to the beginning and I found that bit that says, you know, other works by the author. And to my delight, there was at least 30 titles listed there. And so in a way, the the joy of anticipation that I felt was more than the joy of having read the book itself. I think Christian joy is kind of similar. If you've come into a relationship with Jesus, then you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You've experienced His love, His mercy, His grace, and it's good. But your joy is not just in 
your present experience of God. Because actually, the experience of those things kind of um, comes and goes. It's intense sometimes and, and, and almost seemingly absent at others. Now, Christian joy uh, is linked to something greater than just present experience. It's in that you've been written into the great story of God, a cosmic drama that covers the extent of history, past, present, and future. And it's a story of at least four acts. <laughs> Act one, the world was created in goodness. We can look back and see that God made this world and made us to be good, a paradise world to be occupied and nurtured by paradise people. Then act two, there is a problem within us. The first humans sinned and rebelled, cutting themselves off from the life source of God and bringing the curse of death and sin into the world. Act three, the solution is outside of us. God, rich in mercy, entered into our world to save it. First through the people of Israel, who is covenant and laws, and then finally in Jesus, the Word made flesh who dies to redeem us from sin and usher in a new age of the Spirit who renews us. And this is the act that we're li living in right now. But Act 4, there's more to come. A final restoration. Although sin and death still have power will not be forever, Jesus promises to return in power and glory, totally renewing the world and restoring it to its original state and in fact, even better than before. So there are all sorts of things that should elicit joy in us from being a Christian. But our joy is not dependent on our current experience of those things. Actually, it's grounded in a story which transcends those things. It's a story in which the best is yet to come. Resurrection, renewal, restoration. And I think one of the things I've noticed about uh, at least the church in our tradition at the moment, is that far too few Christians are focused on the yet to come and very focused on the here and now, which is a problem because the here and now can be full of all sorts of trials. And this is why James says, consider it pure joy. Considering is something that we do with our minds. James is saying, in the middle of trials, learn to place yourself in the story of God and access the joy of knowing that this moment and its hardships are only fleeting. One author puts it this way, Christian joy is a settled contentment in every situation. I love that. Christian joy is a settled contentment in every situation. A joyful spirit still grieves in hardship, still feels pain, but it also feels grounded and secure, tethered to an anchor that cannot be moved, and expectant of a time when all will be made well. So the first step towards maturity is learning to consider it joy as we go up against trials. The second step comes from persevering through those trials. So we've come up against, now we're persevering through. Uh, verse two and three again. Uh, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance is an essential life skill, right? From an early age, we learn that we've got to press through challenges from learning to use cutlery, to passing exams, to dealing with rejection. It's just something that we've got to learn in order to survive. And in fact, um, the psychologist Angela Duckworth did some research and worked out that people with what she calls grit have better outcomes in life. Basically, grit or perseverance pays off. In her book, she says, uh, grit is all about hope. She says, grit rests on the expectation that our own efforts can improve our future. So, believe in yourself, work hard, and you can be an overcomer. Uh, you might have read her book, and I think there's heaps in it that's actually really useful and helpful, and it's a really interesting research. But there are some problems, I think. One is that for some, creating their own success through sheer determination is not realistic. Self-belief is workable if you already have certain life advantages. But for the extremely disadvantaged, the obstacles are just too great. And it can be crushing. Also, grit can make for great outcomes in some areas at the expense of others. For example, um, some recent journalism has explored the phenomenon of hustle culture. Have you heard of this? Hustle culture. Young people, particularly, are convincing themselves that workaholism is healthy, is good. And so they use uh, tags like hashtag thank God it's Monday, hustle harder, and my favorite, rise and grind. So clever. Uh, but the articles actually point out, and, and there's a number of them out at the moment, that far from producing flourishing people, uh, a toxic and dehumanizing environment is created where people lose relationships, lose health, burn out, and feel a constant sense of guilt and failure for not working hard enough and not hustling enough. Why do I say all this? Well, James would agree that perseverance is fundamental to growing as a person. But there's a danger that we will hear the word perseverance and import into it the kind of grit that our culture tends to think about, right? But it's important to see that James disagrees about perseverance here at a very, very important point. He says the point of perseverance, and indeed actually the source of perseverance, is not to make yourself shine brightly, but to make the object of your faith shine brightly. He says, it's the testing of your faith that produces perseverance. Testing is a word often used um, in, uh, in the first uh, century in a technical sense to describe the process of refining silver and gold. How do you refine silver and gold? Well, you take the, the raw ore from the ground and then you smelt it at extreme pressure and temperatures. And as you do, the impurities leach out and then you've got something uh, valuable and precious that remains. One Peter um, uses the same term when he says that we are, as Christians, refined by fire, right? Through hardship. 
So in the same way as, as the, the process of smelting, our faith in God is purified in the smelting pot of hardships. So when you come up against trial, here's what happens. You learn that your safety nets, your normal safety nets, um, aren't reliable enough. Security, whether financial or otherwise, comfort, pleasure, romance, they don't ultimately come through to provide something secure for you in the middle of hard times. So what do you do? Instead, or as well as maybe, you turn to God. You dig into his word. You rely on his promises. In the pain, you get a sense that somehow God is still with you. He's still good. He's got you. It's going to be okay. You cling to the cross and to the resurrection. In other words, you find joyful confidence in the truth that God is the author of your story and he has already written the end. So even as the trials feel like fire burning, God is able and powerful enough to turn grief into grace by working through these things to remove the impurities of sinful self-reliance that have captured your soul. And out of the fire comes a faith that shines like gold. When troubles appear like dark storms on the horizon, God calls us to not shrink from them, but actually stretch out our faith towards them, allowing his truth to go before you to buffer you from the worst of it, but not remove you from it because these troubles have become aspects of grace to you. And we can be assured that in the promise of Jesus that even faith the size of a mustard seed is enough because every ounce of faith that we have is a gift of the God who never leaves us lacking, never leaves us shortchanged. So the second step towards maturity then is building strong faith that glimmers by persevering through trials. But here we come to a challenge because James reminds us that trials can come in a million shapes, a million forms. No two are alike. And that means that persevering through any one of them will require a unique application of your faith. It's not always enough, actually, to just say, I trust God with this. That can be enough, but not always enough. Because often that statement needs to have some content behind it. We need to be able to articulate exactly what it is that makes God trustworthy. And so the path towards maturity takes one more step. We need to gain wisdom by moving further into the wisdom of the gospel. So finally, moving further into wisdom. Uh, at our local playground, uh, we go to with Jonathan quite a lot. There's a particularly challenging bit of equipment. Uh, it's basically a series of little platforms linked together by chains. And so if you stand on it, it's like super wobbly, and um, even I struggle with it. The key to traversing this particular challenge is the two uh, horizontal bars on either side, right? Uh, so as you stand on the wobbly platform, the kids learn that if they grab the bars and transfer their weight, 
into through their arms, then what happens? The, the, it's not that the, the platforms stop being a bit wobbly, but they become much more stable, right? And so holding those bars, you can then move from one to the other down the side. Hopefully get the picture. Uh, James here tells us that life is a bit like this, and wisdom is a bit like this. When life feels unstable, he says, throw out your hands and place your weight onto something solid. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Wisdom, what is wisdom? Wisdom is what tells a surgeon where to cut. Wisdom is what tells a gardener where to prune. Wisdom is what tells a Christian where and how to apply what we believe. Wisdom, in other words, is faith lived out. It's the right application of the gospel to the specific challenges of life. So James gives us a second command to go with considerate pure joy. He says, if we lack wisdom, we should ask God for it. Wisdom is something to pray for. And not just once. In fact, the sense of this command is that it's continual. Continually pray that God will give you wisdom. That He would give you wisdom in the small things. That He would give you wisdom in the great big decisions. Pray for wisdom in your relationships, wisdom in your career, wisdom in, in how you participate in church, in your church family. In fact, if you aren't regularly praying for wisdom, then there's a possibility that you are actually functionally relying on your own wisdom, your own grit to navigate trials. James talks about that kind of person in verse 6. He, he calls that person a doubter. Now, this is a verse that has caused considerable consternation for some people because it sounds like James is saying that you can never have any doubts as a Christian. He's not saying that. He's not saying the doubts in this sense are not those kind of very normal uh, grappling with the often difficult and hard truths about God. It's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is um, uh, someone who deep down in the bottom of their heart doubts and in fact doesn't believe that God is generous and will give us all we need for life. This is someone who doubts the very fundamental character of God. There are some uh, who might say, well, I'm a Christian. I go through the forms of religion. But in actual experience, I cling to my own wisdom to get by. Those sorts of people, James would say, don't receive wisdom from God because they've actually already chosen the wisdom of the world. And if they do pray for wisdom, they pray half-heartedly, perhaps more out of religious habit than actually out of belief. James calls them double-minded and unstable, like a boat without a rudder, tossed to and fro by the mercy of the waves. Just as Jesus said, you can't serve two masters, here James is saying, you can't rely on two types of wisdom. But to those who offer God their mustard seed faith and ask him for wisdom, he gladly grants it. 
they continue on the path to maturity as his wisdom begins to cast out fear, doubt, and insecurity and replaces it with faith, hope, and love. For this person, trials and troubles still hurt, but they don't crush. Instead, they are transformed into opportunities to grow towards maturity. But here's the thing. It becomes necessary then for us to be able to distinguish between the two types of wisdom, right? Because how do you know if the wisdom you're using is the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world? Well, there's lots we can say about it. But here's what James would say. And here's what we, 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 we find out as we read through the whole of Scripture. How can we recognize the wisdom of God? Well, God's wisdom looks like Jesus. Not too long after James wrote his letter, the Apostle Paul came behind and wrote his letter to the Corinthians. And he told them right uh, at the beginning of the letter that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Not that Christ is wise or has the wisdom of God. No, Christ is the wisdom of God. So when you ask God for wisdom, what you're actually asking for is Christ. You're asking, as Paul would say later, to be given the mind of Christ, to have a way of thinking and understanding and seeing the world that reflects Jesus. How does that work? Well, James gives a short example of what it looks like in verses 9 and 10. And I'll finish with this. James assumes that in the church there are rich people, And there's poor people. And he says to them both, trials of many kinds await you. You who are poor, watch out. You could fall into despondency and bitterness. And you who are rich, watch out. Because one day your wealth may well be taken away and and because you've linked your identity to your riches, then you will be destroyed. And if that doesn't happen in this life, then it will happen at death. So both their faiths are going to be tested, rich and poor. So here's what it will mean to apply God's wisdom and persevere through these trials and become mature. James says, if you are poor, take pride in your high position. And if you are rich, take pride in your low position. What? Seems kind of upside down. How can poor, how can the poor take pride in being rich? They're poor. How can the rich take pride in being poor? They're rich. It's kind of a paradox. But James is no fool. He knows that true flourishing can only happen in the shadow of the cross. They have to learn the upside down wisdom of Christ's kingdom. Think of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes we heard read before. The poor and the meek are the wealthiest. The mourners are the comforted. The thirsty are the sated. The last are first. The first are last. Everything is upside down and back to front. And here is the key. When you find your place in God's story and are given the wisdom to bring the gospel to bear on your life, then spiritual truth counteracts the dangers of practical circumstances. If you are material, materially poor, 
act like you are spiritually rich because you are. And if you are materially rich, act like you are spiritually poor because you are. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells um, the church there the same thing. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that in his poverty you might become rich. Are you poor? You can rejoice. Because Christ entered your poverty and has given you the riches of his kingdom. You're not defined by your lack of money, but by your eternal status as sons and daughters of God. Are you rich? Don't you dare put your identity in your financial material success because you don't have anything that wasn't given to you by God. Be humbled when you realize that you are actually as vulnerable as a flower. So become poor in spirit and you will store up for yourself treasures in heaven that will never fade. Do you see the wisdom of Christ? Can you apply it to your own situation? How are you feeling right now? Are you feeling low, stuck, oppressed, lacking, lost, anxious? Well, friends, God is not far from you. In fact, he knelt down to meet you. Christ stooped to the cross out of the riches of heaven to the poverty of earth, to the depths of pain, humiliated and scorned, so that he might grasp you and lift you up to glory are you feeling good are you feeling wise are you feeling capable self-sufficient secure well Christ shows us that though all this is good all of it is grace and yet it is still not enough for you cling to something that is enough find your identity in the one who is wisdom who is wealth so friends, this is how to avoid becoming doubters, clinging to a false wisdom that cannot ultimately help us. Here's how to find a wisdom that brings perseverance through any challenge, and in fact, even persevering through death itself. Encounter Jesus, who, though his wisdom was rejected by many, has proved that he is true wisdom by rising from the dead. Do you want to have spiritual power to persevere through whatever challenges come your way? Do you want to be refined like pure gold? Have your, your faith shimmer? James says this, ask God for the wisdom of Christ and it will be given to you because of our generous, ever-giving God. Let's pray. My Father, we thank you that Christ is your wisdom and that though he was seen to be the foolishness of the world, by the world, he has been revealed to us as wisdom and goodness and peace and truth and wealth. Father, help us to cling to him as he has, cling, as he has clung to us. Help us to come to the foot of the cross and see their wisdom for life. Wisdom that if put into action, he will help us persevere and not just persevere, but thrive as we become mature people in him who is the head that is Jesus. 
So help us, Father. We need your help, Spirit. Amen.